May 2020 into June 2020 has been one of the most difficult seasons in the history of our nation. The, the murder of George Floyd, the resulting outcry across the country and the world has brought rise to so much emotion, calls for justice in the face of injustice. This morning, I want to remind you, if you don't know, I'd like to inform you that this is not the first time our country has been divided over racial issues and the injustice that are often accompanied with those issues. In fact, 50 years ago, in May of 1970, on the campus of Jackson State University in my hometown of Jackson, Mississippi, 12 students were shot and injured, two shot and killed, one not even a student at Jackson State, actually a a high school student from Jim Hill High School who had stopped to see the riot. The riot had started because there was a rumor that the mayor of Fayette, Mississippi, the brother of Medgar Evers, who had been murdered mercilessly earlier in the civil rights conflict, that his brother Charles, the mayor at Fayette, had been killed along with his wife. It was an untrue rumor, but it was a powerful rumor. And the students at Jackson State, about a hundred of them, had congregated along Lynch Street there in Jackson, near the campus, right on the campus actually. Their number grew over a day until, until the evening of May 14th when in spite of the efforts of the president of the university, in spite of the efforts of people who were there, it just, the rumor just kept flying and, 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 and the tension became greater and greater. And 75 police officers from the Jackson Metropolitan Police Department and the Mississippi State Patrol arrived in riot gear with guns and tear gas to put down the peaceful demonstration. Something somewhere snapped. No one's ever really been able to figure it out. Some say a bottle dropped. Some say a gun fired. No one really understands except that in the next 30 seconds, those 75 officers unloaded 460 rounds of ammunition into a college dorm. For those of you from the Midwest, it was 10 days after Kent State's riots about the Vietnam War and the protests there. For those of us from Mississippi, it was, it was not about Vietnam. It was about race. I didn't live in Mississippi then. In fact, at the time of that riot, I was an elementary school student in the sixth grade in West Texas, but 18 months later, my parents accepted the opportunity to pastor a Church of God congregation located 1.4 miles from Jackson State University 
and my family moved. And when I arrived in Jackson, our family arrived to a, to a racial divide and a tension of anger. Schools had been desegregated by federal law, but even though students were told to go to specific schools, the KKK created a, a separate private school system, and, and students who were Caucasian didn't enroll in the, private, in the public school. They enrolled in the private one. And when they did, it left the public schools in racial tension. My junior high, eighth grade, that I moved into in November of 1971 had 800 students in two grades, 600 African-American students, 200 Caucasian students. It was an entirely new world for me. It was an entirely new world for my family. I only lived a little ways from the middle school. And so, as I'm the new student, actually for the seventh time since the third grade, I was the new student in a new school. I was walking home after basketball practice with one of my teammates up Charles Street, just a mile from the Jackson State campus. When suddenly, as we're just talking and walking, as eighth grade boys are known to do, my friend tackled me, and I, I couldn't figure out what was going on until I heard something fly past my head, and then I heard words, words that were profane and bigoted and hate-filled, telling me that I didn't belong because I was walking with a teammate who was black. A carload of white guys had driven by. I won't tell you the words they called me. My, my friend picked me up and he said, Kerry, we, we can't keep walking together. I said, no, no, we have to keep walking together. You're my teammate, you're the only guy I know. You're my friend and my life has never been the same since that day on Charles Street. The power of that moment when my friend helped me up on Charles Street in Jackson, Mississippi, so shaped my life that this last week when I was watching the footage and seeing the, the horror of the things happening in our culture today, I, I went back to Google Earth on my computer and I I went back to the campus of Jackson State University and then over to my middle school, which was just a mile away, and, and then I, I retraced my steps on Google Earth, and as I was watching on the computer screen, as I was walking up that same sidewalk, now, now four decades later, and I came to the spot where, where my teammate and I stood after those young men had said all of those horrible things, I have to tell you, the emotions were so overwhelming that I sat at my desk with tears in my eyes, remembering what changed in me 
on that day that I would never, ever forget that I would always feel this, this overarching call to do what God calls us to do to bring about harmony and reconciliation and peace regardless of the differences in our lives. And so since that day, I've, I've wrestled with, with how do you respond to a great mandate that the Spirit of God places in your heart that you can no longer sit by and watch as someone is hated and harmed because of the color of their skin. This morning, I want you to know that, that after all of these decades, I... I've returned back to the, to the same place where we should all return, to the Word of God. The answers to this is, are, are not going to come out of our human efforts. The, the answers to the, to the hatred and the bigotry and the injustice are, are not going to come from the, from the workings of our minds together. Even though we are better together, and even though, as we've learned through COVID-19, we are all in this together, there's only one source for healing only one source for harmony, only one source for reconciliation, and that is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the power of His Holy Spirit. And so this morning, as many of us are, are wrestling in these weeks in 2020 with the same issues that 50 years ago my peers and my family and my colleagues were wrestling with as a as we looked at racial hatred and injustice, I want you to know that, that we're not the first people to wrestle with a mandate that's bigger than our ability. No. In fact, there were 11 men who began to wrestle with that less than a month after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Listen. Listen. As I read for you from Acts chapter 1, the story that we talked about last week as we began our series, Yours, Mine, and Ours, the stories of God's people, the story continues after Jesus' ascension. The disciples, who had received a mandate that was so much bigger than anything they had ever learned, they had been told by Jesus that, that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the entire world. These men were fishermen and tax collectors. They were from Galilee. They weren't the, the ones who had gone to synagogue school. They weren't the rabbis. They, they weren't the people of power and prestige. No, they, they were just everyday men who had followed this Jesus, but they had been with Jesus. And now Jesus had entrusted the very heart of God to them. And they, they were right where you and I are. They, they heard and they saw this amazing thing that God was calling them to do. This sense of sharing the love and grace and mercy and forgiveness of Jesus with an entire world. And yet, how do you do it? Just like many of us are wrestling with our own feelings about what we've been watching in terms of our nation and our world and are asking how do we respond? Listen to what 
those 11 men did. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. These, these men who had received a, an overwhelming mandate from Jesus Christ to go and, and make disciples, to go and share the good news, to go and bring love and grace and forgiveness to a world that was full of bigotry and hatred and violence, they pattern for us in this simple passage, in these, in these few short verses from the pen of Luke, they, they show us how to respond. They show us the, the power of, of the human family. You see, these, these men, when they came back from the Mount of, Olive, Mount of Olives, the Mount Olivet, to the city of Jerusalem, they didn't go into the temple to proclaim. They didn't go into the marketplace to tell people what they were to do. They, they didn't go on mission anywhere yet. First, they went to a safe place to listen to God and each other. You see, I would suggest to you that when you're faced with an overwhelming mandate from God, when you're in the face of circumstances that are beyond your own abilities to comprehend, when you're picking yourself up off the sidewalk on Charles Street, or you're walking through the, the, the city where you live, or you're looking at the images on Instagram or, or in the, the news in the evening, and you're seeing something that rips your soul, what you've got to do is not run to respond, but to find a safe place to have a posture of listening. They went to the upper room. They went to a place that they were already staying. They went to the place where, where Jesus had shown up and told Thomas, hey, put your hand in my side. They went to the place where the night before he was crucified, Jesus had sat with them and broken bread with them and talked to them and prayed for them. They went back to a safe place to listen to God. My friends, I, I, I want you to know one of the most powerful conversations I've ever had in my life happened on Charles Street in Jackson, Mississippi when my friend, my teammate, and I walked the rest of the way home. And for the rest of that school year, when we walked home, he would help me understand the culture, the life, the society into which I had just moved as a 13-year-old kid. I learned things I had never even thought about before. And from that moment on, one of the things I've realized is the same thing that these men realized, that when God calls you to something that's overwhelming and beyond your, your, your control and beyond your ability to understand, then what you've got to do is adopt a posture of listening, listening to God and listening to each other. 
I would suggest to you that if you really want to make a difference, silence your posts, silence your tweets, silence yourself, and listen. Listen to people. Adopt a posture of humility. Engage in relationships that that bring you information about culture that you don't understand. When I moved to Daytona Beach about 30 years ago now to become the pastor of a Church of God congregation and the president of a Christian school that was a part of that congregation's ministry, I wanted to get to know the people in Daytona Beach, Florida. I wanted to, to get to know the people who could help that ministry in the city. And, and there in Daytona Beach, there's a historically black college called Bethune-Cookman University. Their president was Dr. Oswald Bronson Sr. And Dr. Bronson was the president of that university for three decades. We happened to have some mutual friends. And, and one of those mutual friends set up a time for me as a young early 30s pastor to meet with this seasoned educator, this pastor from the Methodist church who had had done his ministry in the life of a historically black college. We met at Bethune-Cookman. We went to the special president's luncheon room in the dining hall where all the African-American students who attended there were having lunch. And I walked through feeling quite out of place culturally We sat down at the table, Dr. Bronson and a couple of the vice presidents, and they said, Carrie, welcome to Daytona Beach, Florida. How can we help you? I said, you know what? I'd really like to know what people in the African-American community think about the church that I pastor. Dr. Bronson, who had this wonderful spirit of love and grace, who who was known for always greeting people with a phrase that said, my friends, my friends, and you knew it was sincere, placed his fork down on the table, leaned across and smiled at me and said, oh, there are many things that, that we could tell you about your school and the church, but can we just start with the name of your church? Because that name is a barrier to people whose skin tone is the same as mine. I said, what do you mean? He said, Carrie, tell me the name of your church. I said, White Chapel, Church of God. It's painted white on the outside. The pews have white cushions in them. The the history of the naming of the church is that that when they first made the sanctuary and they put the, the pews in it and they needed to put pads on the pews, the only fabric they had was white. And, and so the ladies of the church made the, the fabric and covered the cushions and put them on the pews. And, and someone standing there looked out over the room and said, isn't it a beautiful little white chapel? He smiled, reached across the table and put his hand on my shoulder and said, That's a great story, and I'm sure it's true. But if you're black in Daytona, you're never going to a church that says White Chapel. Over the years, that congregation has worked very diligently and continues to work diligently to reach out to people of color from all races. They're a very diverse congregation. But I have to tell you, until I went back and sat with the board and shared with them what what Dr. Bronson had said to me. 
it never crossed any of our minds that our name was a barrier. Some of you, and you hear me tell that story, like, well, well, pastor, they should have looked past that. No, I'm, I'm telling you the story because I only learned it when I found a safe space to listen to someone whose perspective was different than mine. You want to make a difference in this world? You want to bring about an end to the injustice? You want to bring about a harmony among those who are separated by their skin tone? Then I'm asking you, I'm imploring you, please be quiet and listen. Listen to people who are different than you. The disciples, when they went back into that upper room, did you hear the way Luke wrote it? He goes through the names of all 11 disciples and he says that they were all there and they were all in one accord and they were devoted to praying, devoted to listening to God. And then he does something that we read over so quickly that is so radical for the first century that Jesus made happen. Listen to what he says again when I read it. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. That was groundbreaking, earth-shattering stuff. You see, they were including people who were not included in their time of listening. They were finding ways to, to not just listen to someone or some position. They were, they were building relationships, relationships that bring people together, relationships that, that, that help us hear one another. One of the things I love about pastoring Eastside Church is that while we are not a perfect church, we have for two decades worked extremely hard to make sure that any person from any race and any background is welcome at every level of leadership in the life of this congregation. So many of you have, have joined me in, in services in this city where we, where we were surrounded by people from different ethnicities and different backgrounds so many of you have reached out in love to people who are different in skin tone. Our staff, our elders, our places of service are all open to anyone, to everyone who calls Jesus Christ their Savior and lives in harmony with the Spirit of God and the teachings of God's Word. We have 12 elders here. It's our only singular board it is our board of governance that oversees our mission. 25% of that board, 25% of that board are people of color. People who are from Asian backgrounds or Hispanic backgrounds or African American backgrounds. 25% of that board is female. This is a congregation committed, committed to seeing Humans empowered, committed to seeing the human family empowered by relationships, relationships that allow us to hear diverse voices and know that God is speaking to us through each other. 
But there's one more part to the story that if you read it too quickly, you will, you'll forget. In fact, if you read it without ever reading the rest of the Gospels, you'll just go right over it because you look at it and it just feels so natural. Listen to it again from verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Yes, Jesus' brothers. Well, sure, pastor, his brothers, his mom, obviously they would be there. No, think about this. These are the brothers of Jesus. In fact, John tells us in his gospel in the seventh chapter, at one point, they, they, didn't even, they didn't even believe that Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, after all, if you grow up with somebody, if you watch them in your house, if you play with them on, on your neighborhood street, it's hard to recognize they're the savior of the world. And in John chapter seven, his brothers actually challenge Jesus and say, hey, look, if you're doing all of these miracles up here in the small country where we are, why don't you go down to Jerusalem for the feast? Why don't you go down to the feast and, and do the miracles there? And Jesus is like, hey, guys, come on. It's not my time yet. So the brothers go on down to Jerusalem to the feast. But Jesus comes quietly later on, and then he steps into a more public ministry than he'd ever known before. See, I think it's, I think it's so imperative to see that when you find a safe place and adopt a posture to listen, when you include diverse voices and, and, and diverse perspectives in your process of listening, that, that you come to the place where you're well, you're actually willing, actually willing to, to let God move you from fear and anxiety and doubt to involvement in the kingdom of God. And, what, and what's happening right now in this passage, what's happening in that upper room as these 11 men plus the women who were involved in the ministry plus Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, is that now here is this place, this safe place of listening and this place of inclusion where now suddenly his brothers, his brothers who didn't believe he was the Messiah at one time, now know he is the Messiah. And they're there in one accord, praying and waiting for what God would do on the day of Pentecost. My friends, you want to see an end to the injustice? You want to see an end to the bigotry? Allow God Allow God to give you such a perspective that you are able to say, I'm going to leave behind my fear, and I'm going to leave behind my doubt, and I'm going to embrace the fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and God is doing something bigger than anyone else can do. You see, it's like this. When you adopt a posture of humility and listening. And then you're willing to, to include different perspectives than the ones you bring to the table. And then you're, you're willing to, to say to God, to Jesus, Jesus, change my heart. Show me where you want me to be. He, he, what God does is God shows you a new way to view the world. In fact, 
I believe that, that the power of the human family happens in our life, happens in our culture, happens in our world, when, when we, instead of seeing with two eyes, begin to see with three eyes. No, I, I don't mean get surgery and have another eye put in your forehead. That would be bizarre. No, what I mean is this. When we quit seeing with our human eyes, the two eyes that we've been given, and we begin to see with the eye, the eye of an invitation to listen, and we give that invitation, and we receive that invitation, and we place ourselves in places where we are the one who has the minority point of view, and we listen. When we begin to see with the eye of inclusion and, and we begin to hear different voices that, that tell us about who Jesus is in their life and their story matches with our story and now suddenly it's your story and my story and our story, then we begin to see with different eyes. And when we're willing to see with the eye of involvement in the work of the kingdom of God, then we begin to see that God is changing everything. Because the kingdom of God starts right here. And the kingdom where, where there is harmony and where there is love and there is unity, it, it begins as what happens in us begins to work out in the involvements of our life. The only question is, will we let God be the one who builds our life? Will we let God, through Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, place us in a, a safe space to listen, surround us with diverse voices and perspectives that all honor Christ, and find places to involve ourselves in the lives of others if we'll see with those three eyes, we will see a world transformed. But it doesn't start with championing a cause. It starts with surrendering your life. So this morning, I invite you to join me in responding to the overwhelming mandate of God to love people, to share Jesus to reach across divided societies and offer peace and love and grace.